Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast once again. Matt Walsh here, joined once again by Jake Michaels and Christian Jolly. Jake, have you seen Barbie or Oppenheimer yet? I have not. You always have a weird question for me off the top. I never know what it is and I haven't <laughs> seen... Are, are they out yet? Yeah, both both came out on Thursday. There you go. Should know that working for Disney in the well, no, uh, film no, industry. No, no, Disney doesn't... Well, no, I know that, yeah. but film industry. Um, no, I haven't. You're, you're more of a film buff than me, aren't you? Oh, I wouldn't say that. I go to the f- cinema every now and then. When's the last time you went? I'm being Thursdays <laughs> to go and see Oppenheimer. Oh, so you have been? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How was it? <laughs> uh, Oppenheimer was really good. I thought it was really good. I think Killian Murphy's a great actor. Um, saw him in Peaky Blinders as well. 28 Days Later, I think he's also in that. He's, he's been in a few things and he was in Dunkirk with Chris Nolan as well. Haven't seen any of those films. Not a film guy. Oh, if there's no score in the top right corner, I find it hard to watch. <laughs> oh, you're a film guy, Christian? I guess you watch a lot of no, I'm footy Jake. I, I think the uh, last two films I watched probably Alvin and the Chipmunks with wow. my nieces with or the kids. kids or something, but nah, not a film guy at all. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, plenty to get to this week, including which teams are nailing the quote-unquote premiership standards in the run home, while we also chat rising star, clutch players, pressure factors, and a whole bunch more. But before we get into another episode, Jake, something you noticed from the weekend of footy? Uh, well, it came yesterday when at about 4 p.m. in the afternoon, we get sent 4 p.m. in uh, the afternoon, as opposed to 4 p.m. in the morning. Thank you. Um, we get sent the, the coaches' votes for the round that was. Yep. And I must say, I was, well, I shouldn't say I was surprised because we all know that everyone seems to hold Max Gorn to this level that is just above any other player. But the fact he received the most coaches' votes in that Melbourne-Adelaide game was astounding to me. I thought it was quite clear that it was Pickett and Rankin vying for... I, I wouldn't have been surprised to see them both get nine. Like, they were both fantastic. Um, yet it was Gorn tied most coaches' votes. I did, kicked a really nice goal at the start of the game and really didn't have much in, impact, I thought. I, I, I don't know if I'm just watching the game a different way to everybody else, but I was staggered to see that. And I don't understand why... Um, or, or the fact that both coaches seem to see it in a similar way. So how many votes did he get? Off he the top got of seven. And then how did these other two, uh, Pickett and Rankin, go? So he got seven uh, off the top of my head. I, Pickett had seven as well, I think, and Rankin six or the other way around. Right. One of them, had, Two of them had seven, one had six. But I just thought that the other two were clearly head and shoulders the best players on the ground. I thought Viney had more influence than than Gorn. I thought uh, Brayshaw had more influence than Gorn. My favourite part about the coaches' votes is, is going through them and looking at the possible combinations of who's given each player each number of votes. And it's the best when you get a game where it's kind of like... The old double five, double four, double six. No, no, well, that's good too. That's very satisfying. But it's even better when like the highest score is like six or seven. Mm. And like someone's gone three and four, but that's the max. And then sort of like five will be under that because it's seven and then five. And, then, and, then, and so you get this really large spread and you go... Geez, these guys were watching completely reckon, different games. I reckon we mentioned this earlier in the year, but do you do you think the coaches are doing the coaches' votes as opposed to as opposed to someone else? Or they're, they're fobbing it off to the assistants. Just, I'll just someone do someone this. I got to go to work at the press conference or it's something else to do. Someone else put some. I wonder when they lodge them. Yeah. yeah, I was about to say how long. Yeah, it depends mm. on the timing of it. If the, you think if they have to be lodged ten minutes after the game, I couldn't see many coaches doing it. But if they've got a day to mull over it, surely they've maybe. Mm. I also think it's um. It's the same for like when you get awards and they always take the, the awards like votes five minutes before the game finishes so they can relay it to the person on the ground. Yeah. Surely we're at the point now where you can pick up the phone after the siren's gone and go, hey, you know, hey, Mish or whoever, it's the, the master of ceremonies down there. We've tallied them up after the final siren. Yeah, especially a close game. Yeah. Like, if someone kicks two goals to win the game at the end, like, does that not get you 
B-O-G? Mm, Great question. Christian, something from the weekend that took your fancy. Uh, it didn't take my fancy. It's probably a little rant, but I went to the footy <laughs> on Saturday, Carlton West Coast, and uh, obviously at the same time, Hawthorne was playing Richmond over at the MCG, and just no score on the scoreboard for the whole time I was there. Yeah. So, again, don't go to the footy often as a fan. First time I noticed this year, but... Yeah, sort of just a weird one. I just like, as I said, like my son was with me and he'd tipped Richmond, so he wanted to know the score, and we had to sort of go on the AFL app just to see it. How so. was he with scores from clearances this week? Uh, no, I'm pretty good. He likes he's, he's into he's into his palindrome scores now. Wow, so he okay. Likes yep. it when it's 21 versus 12, and I always get called to the TV when it's a palindrome score. But no, nah, just. Uh, yeah, as I said, I used to sit there as a kid at the footy and used to get five games on it all at the same time. A versus G B. versus H yeah. and A versus B, but nothing. Not one stat update, not even at half time I, of I that guess, game. I guess the, the assumption is people can just log onto the app and, and I guess flick through and... Yeah, whether it's a spoiler alert, yeah, whether maybe. people like to watch it. Uh, yeah, I just couldn't get my head around why well, they that's were exactly it, because back in the score. day it was like, no one, you're either listening on the radio or come up on the on the big screen. Now, mm. as you said, every person's got the. I was out on. I was telling you guys, I was out on Saturday night, desperately trying to avoid the the Port Adelaide uh, Collingwood score, wanting to go home and watch it later. I had to walk past pubs with my fingers in my ears <laughs> and shutting my eyes, walking into trees and stuff, um, to avoid it. Now it's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, my. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, something I noticed. So, when you're a kid um, and and you're a defender, so I, I was a defender in the juniors. Obviously, any good? No, not very. No, I was all right. Um, you know, second division what, in, in what, the under sixteen. Give me a pl- give me a current player that you would sort of say you played like. Uh, oh, nowhere near as good as any of those players. No, no. But what kind of style? Uh, rebounding interceptor kind of vibe. Maybe a Tom Stewart. Oh, I'm pumping <laughs> myself up here. Uh, no, but like you always sort of taught to avoid danger. So you're not kicking across goal. You're not doing a whole lot of stuff. So. When uh, on the weekend, and you were talking about the game at the MCG, so it was Richmond and Hawthorne, uh, very tight towards the end. Hawks gave up, gave up, I thought they had it in the bag. Mm. Five goals up at three quarter time. Anyway, the Tigers come back and they're pressing and they're pressing in the last minute. And a ball comes in from Dusty from from uh, from the fifty towards the top of the square. And poor old Will Day is there at the bottom of the uh, of of the drop of the ball. And he punches the footy, which great. You know, he probably could have tried to take the mark. I don't know, but he, anyway, he punches the footy. The issue that I have is he punched it right back into the corridor. And Liam Baker picks it up, um, snaps the goal. Richmond end up winning. And I'm just thinking you have to be punching that towards the boundary line. That's one of the, the, the first things you're taught as a, as a young junior or as a, as a defender in the junior leagues is, is just avoid any danger you can. Um, so just a, a big, big lesson there for young day. Don't come Monday. No, nah, he can come Monday. He's pretty good. But just one of those like, just one of those moments where you go, if he he would love to have that back again. Yeah. I would mean, Liam Baker like to hand it off next time, or or do you think he was happy to take the uh, take the goal on? He had a couple of open players right there. I think he well clearly took it on. I mean, yeah, I, I think you could. I I know where you're coming from with with uh, Day, but I mean, you could say something like that with every any any tight loss. You can analyze the last two minutes. Of course, and, you can and pick out five things and you know it was a round round 19 was a, a week where we had was it five, five games decided by 11 points or fewer so you could look at all five of those and, and look at a moment that may have won or lost the game but i don't think you'd be too too uh too harsh on will day normally i that's my role normally to to whack these young guys you're you're usually very uh calm and measured and and not willing to wow to give okay. a spray i'm not giving him a spray i'm just saying he would have liked to have that moment back again yeah fair enough. uh let's get into things so the giants six in a row now blues five in a row the saints are still somehow in the eight the saints mm. God, they're ordinary aren't they 
Yeah? How are they where they are? I don't understand. Well, really, the teams from 5th to 11th are separated by one win. I know. So it's very tight in the middle. you got the Dogs at 5th, then the Saints, Giants, Cats, and then the Blues, Tigers, and Bombers just outside the 8th. Uh, all kind of within that four points, and a couple of those teams have a draw. So, so really, there's a lot of leapfrogging still to happen in the in the remainder of the season. Tell you and, what, though, just slightly, just on on the the same sort of track as that. Melbourne, the last couple of weeks, very narrow, treading water wins. in the four. And I tell you what, they could easily be. You know, those two wins have got them though that two game buffer. They could easily have lost both, and they they could be in that same pack as well. Yeah, um, but there are. Teams that are still in it, all the way down to... Well, I, I've drawn the line at 11th for now, but I guess technically there are still a couple of teams below that. Uh, and you're looking at the ladder now, Jake. There are a couple of teams below that that could still potentially get in. I know Sydney's percentage is pretty good. Uh, who else is down there? Adelaide's down there. Adelaide. Don't think they can make it. They've got, uh, obviously, Port this week and then Brisbane in a fortnight, and they probably have to win certainly four, if not five. I don't think they're going to do that. Um, and then the Suns, and then you're sort of down to... Yeah. But... And I know we've discussed this on the podcast before. Any of those teams from 5th to 11th, are you backing them to have a big impact in September? Well, not really. I think Geelong, everyone's sort of almost waiting for Geelong to do something um, special just because we know that they can and what we saw last year, winning what 16 in a row to win the flag. Um, different proposition, though, from the bottom half of the eight, if they do uh, indeed make it. I think the Dogs, I mean, they are the fifth team at the moment, so they're they're up the the top of it at the top at the moment but i think they're the one that would could cause us a bit of an upset in september if if they're if they get the right matchup and i wouldn't be surprised if they sort of finished fifth or sixth and won two finals won multiple finals made a prelim i think they're the team that sort of feel like they could do it uh, so Ron Connolly writes for espn.com.au he kind of described the the race for these final spots in the eight as like the um the support act, you're, you're kind of happy to see at a concert, but you're still waiting for the main event, which is kind of these Collingwood, uh, Port Adelaide and Brisbane types. Mm. Christian, we've asked you to have a look at the team sort of ranked between 5th and 11th in that middle band to sort of see which teams are currently nailing the premiership standards. And we'll go through what the premiership standards uh, are in a second. But if you had to kind of look at one or two teams uh, from that from that middle band, who are you backing to make an impact? Uh, again, so if you're looking at totality of the whole year, so across the whole 19 rounds, it's probably Carlton's profile still stacks up quite well. And we've probably Gee, spoken about you've Carlton. Done, you've gone full 180 on and the Blues. I've, I've never jumped off him. I just, <laughs> <laughs> that's rubbish. I, the main thing with Carlton, and I've been stressing the whole time, is it's the things that have fallen apart in single games. There isn't one area of Carlton where you look out across a stat sheet and go, this is where their area is that they break down every game. Because one game it was ball movement that they were no good at, and then the next week they were the best ball movement team. It was the Melbourne game where they got smashed in clearances and tackles, and then the next week they're sort of the number one contested possession team. And, so how does that happen? Of, exactly. So that's why I've, 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 that's what I'm saying. I've, clearly, I've, that's why I hadn't jumped off Carlton, because when you look at their profiles, like they stack up pretty well. It's just within a four-quarter match, something so, would just go wrong. Yeah. And then there was that period there where, as I said, it was accuracy one week, it was contested possession the other, but it wasn't one part of the game where you looked at the opposition uh, sort of had the, had the wood on Carlton. So again, they stack up pretty well across the whole 19 rounds. But if you're looking at recent form, so probably round 11 onwards, it's, it's the Giants who probably have the best form mm. of, that, of, the, of that middle pack. So, so are you saying that if we take sort of that, that top four of Collingwood, Port, Brisbane and Melbourne and put them in an a separate tier, which yes, I guess yes. is what which the is top what we're doing. four is. Um, you're saying it's Carlton or the Giants, well, which might again, be the fifth best. Maybe team. Bulldogs and Cats based on 
experience. And the Bulldogs do have good good numbers. Uh, but, yeah, I'm probably talking more the, the next pack down. So, again, I'll probably have Bulldogs and Cats slightly ahead of this whole group. Mm. But just, I mean, just looking at the two teams, you talked about St Kilda at one end of that pack and Adelaide at the other. So what the Premiership Standards does is it sort of, it, you know, a whole lot of colours in contest, offence, defence, all the sort of areas of your game that where you rank and what you do well. A quick snapshot, Adelaide, basically second for points for number one for scoring per inside 50. So they, they've got the attack down pat. 14th for conceding a score per inside 50, so they can leak a score down the other end. Whereas St Kilda, 18th for scores per inside 50 and number one for restricting the opposition score per inside 50. So you've got Adelaide, whose clear profile is we can outscore the opposition, but we might get beaten the other way. St Kilda, who are sitting, you know, six or seven spots above Adelaide, are all about just defence, just not not conceding a score. They've been horrible, you know, inside their own forward 50, but as long as they keep the games to a low-scoring game, they've been happy. What other stats are vital if you want to be in the premiership race? Yeah, so it talked about, just talking about Adelaide and St Kilda, um, if you're comparing offence and defence, uh, defence comes a- across higher. So, again, what we look at for the premiership stand is, is the last 10 premiers and how often those 10 premiers have ranked in the top six of each stat. Mm-hmm. So if you look at points against, 100% of the uh, last 10 premiers have ranked top six uh, for conceding points against, you know, in, in the bottom six for points conceded. Whereas for points for, it's only eight of the past 10. So not as important. But defence wins premierships. is kind of like that, that old adage kind yeah. of rings true a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and in, in, in the, looking at the potency of your forward line. So if you score per inside 50s in the top six, six of the past 10 have won the premiership. Whereas if you're in the... Uh, sort of bottom six in defensive areas for not conceding a score when the opposition goes inside, mm. that's a 90% sort of strike weight for premiership. So again, you you want to build on defence. You don't want to be scored against. Um, is, is, a whole, is, a, is a large part of that. But yeah, sort of some of the other surprising ones. I mean, contested possession, huge, but you know, it's, it's probably an easy stat to talk about and look at and um, digest as a viewer, 40% of the past 10 premiers have won contested possession. So that would be six. skewed because you look at teams like Richmond in there's there. There's two. So yeah. there's Hawthorne and Richmond who were able to do it without con- winning contested possession. So again, Hawthorne's three-peat still comes into these yep. uh, past 10 years. And Richmond. So both of those got it basically ball movement and skill. Yep. Uh, it was how, how they won the premierships. But you look at uh, teams like the Dogs, Melbourne, who have also won premierships in that time, even Geelong last year. Geelong was one of the best contested possession teams we've ever seen. So it still stacks up. But as I said, there there is uh, there's not one way to win a premiership as Hawthorne and Richmond have shown us in the past. Uh, any others that are worth keeping an eye on and teams that are doing them well from that middle band? Yeah, so ball movement again. So we talked about just moving the ball from your back 50 to inside 50. So again, 10 out of the 10, uh, 10 of the last 10 premiers are ranked top six in that stat. So that means not getting bogged down in, in the middle. Correct. not getting front-half turnovers. Yeah. Or not giving away front-half turnovers. Yeah, so not turning it over in your defensive half and also not turning it over in the midfield. So being able to sort of, yeah, go end-to-end and give your, give your forward line a chance after you've just defended. So if you're sort of talking about, you know, the middle band of those teams, and as I said, you, you sort of want to rank top six in that stat. If we talk about the teams we're talking about, Adelaide are 13th in that stat. So a fair way off. Carlton are 7th. Um, so not quite high enough. St Kilda are... Uh, Number one in that stat. So again, it's it's a weird one when I look at St Kilda. They're the best at moving the ball, but the worst at score. scoring per inside fifty. It's it's they've nailed half the profile, but mm. the other half of the pro, pro, profile still is probably twelve months down the track of you know when they when they can start to score and get some more potency of their forward line, they'll be damaging. But Essendon's probably the other big one uh, that you look at. So their ball movement, they rank second this year uh, for going back fifty. So they they've really sort of hung their hat on being one of the best ball moving ball moving teams Essendon but they sort of again sort of bottom four for defending ball movement so the ball sort of pinging around in Essendon games and again I think 
if you talk about St Kilda, 12 months away, once once they sort of nail the offense, they'll be fine. I think with Essendon, it's the opposite. They've got all their mm-hmm. offense stuff going on. It's it's the defensive stuff that they'll nail in the next 12 months that'll see them probably push it, up higher. It is important to establish some sort of identity, though, yeah. in terms of what and, you do and what you do yeah. well. And as I said, there's a, there's a whole lot of green and reds on here and, and white when you're mid-table. So one of the teams I haven't sort of spoken about just now is Richmond. And they're very, very white. So if in terms of there's 32 stats here... I think I've got six of them where they're in either red or green. So six of those stats they're either good or bad in, and the other 26 stats they're just average in. Mm. But again, a lot of that switches when you look at the two coaches. So mm. just, a, just a little thing. Under Hardwick, they were the uh, they were the uh, number one team for moving the ball from D50 to inside 50, which we've spoken about. But similar to St Kilda, the worst at scoring per inside 50 when Hardwick was coach. Since McCall has come along, they're 18th for moving the ball end-to-end, so they don't really get it end-to-end that successfully. But they're number one for score per inside 50. So it seems like, again, a lot of Richmond's games early on, you go back to round one, the draw against Carlton, where they had 70 inside 50s and just couldn't put it on the scoreboard. I think that happened to, uh, to them a few times. So you see McCall clearly come and change one of their weaknesses, but it's also probably taken away from other parts of their game, trying to trying to become more potent in the forward line. Don't just kick the ball in there and, and let it come straight out. We need to score better. Mm. But then again, they sort of sacrificed a little bit of their ball movement to to sort of fix their forward line. So, Jake, we were playing around with the ladder predictor a little bit before in the office. Mm. Um, so currently, those those fifth to eighth teams, the Dogs, the Saints, the Giants, and the Cats, do you anticipate many changes from that final eight? How, how do you see, with the, the run home ahead of us, um, and, and like I said, Carlton, Richmond, and Essendon kind of biting at the heels of these clubs... Do you see? Do you anticipate any changes, or just to the order of the the current eight? Oh, the order will definitely change. I think that's clear given how tight it is. Um, I, I can think I said it last week. I think Carlton's more likely to make it than miss now, um, even if, even with a loss uh, on Friday night to the Pies, which most people would expect them to lose. If they win, I mean, they're almost certainly going to make it. Um, Richmond, I mean, Richmond was the team I picked at the start of the year to, to win it all. So I'd like them to be in with a shot. Um, going into September but I think from there down I think Essendon I know Essendon's got a few uh, winnable games I think they still play West Coast and North um, in the final five weeks but they feel like they've got to they feel like they've got to win four uh, and then Sydney Adelaide no so I think Carlton and Carlton's the one I think will, that will go in Richmond's a chance too I, I must admit I haven't I haven't looked too closely at Richmond's draw um, but who comes out that's the question I mean you could look at those four teams and you can make a case that they all should stay um St Kilda is probably the one that stands out in terms of I guess personnel and how they're going well. but mm. uh, and so have they and had they lost on sudden Sunday they probably would be favored to, to fall out but but it's hard to see I mean they just they are winning and if you look at just the recent form ladder so you look at a ladder from round 11 to 19 so eight games played for each team you got Collingwood on top GWS second yeah Port Adelaide third or Richmond fourth Carlton fifth so sort of talk about Giants Richmond Calvert Richmond's the interesting one, six and two under McWalter since he took over with a percentage of a hundred point three. Well, their percentage so, is, is actually I was just about to say. So they're currently tenth, nine wins, eight losses, one draw, and their percentage of ninety nine point nine percent. Yeah, so they're very <laughs> very average. Yeah. Um, but but also we were we were discussing that uh, under Hardwick the 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 cliche was they were losing the tight ones. Well, under mm. McWalter they seem to be winning the tight ones. I know that they. They won a really tight one against the Giants, which I think might have been the Giants' last loss. I think, yeah, I, um, I think that's a bit of um, luck. Yeah, I don't think there's any. I think that's just coincidence. I don't think that's a, oh, he's made them a better team in late game situations. I think that's just it's yeah. like accuracy. One week you'll you'll kick everything, the next week you won't. I think it just 
you know, comes and goes. Fair enough. Uh, last week, so Ron Connolly, we mentioned him before. He wrote a piece uh, for the website espn.com.au slash AFL. You can find that. Um, talking about, I guess, the, the the explanation of some of these stats that we go through on this podcast a fair mm. bit. So good on you, Ron. Thanks for listening. Uh, but sort of <laughs> lamenting that it doesn't come across as well, especially in television commentary, where they might just put up a, 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 a box on the screen that says, you know, D50 transition, and then this team does it this well. And it doesn't really explain what it is. A lot is. of jargon. A lot of jargon. And he was sort of saying that, and I read through some of the responses to that because it got posted on Facebook and Twitter and kind of went a little bit viral. And people were kind of saying, yeah, pressure factor. I see that teams are elite, but what does it mean? And this is kind of one of the stats that we have gone through on this podcast before, but every now and then it's kind of nice to do a bit of a refresher on these sort of things for, for those who joined the podcast and maybe wasn't or weren't listening in, in previous years. So, Christian, we thought we'd task you again with explaining what it is, what the pressure factor is, how it's calculated, and then maybe we might go through some of the teams that are uh, doing it well and doing it poorly this year. Yep, so pressure factor is measuring how much pressure each disposal is under for each team. So um, obviously you can win the ball in a pack and, and sort of run into space and kick it. We'll look at, at the point of kicking or handballing at what type of pressure you're under. So we've got a whole other sort of two people capturing the whole game um, based on, you know, we've got the main capture who will capture who has the ball and then pressure will come along and tag all the extra information. So they're, they're actually doing things like what foot a guy's kicking with, what the intended target is, and how much pressure they're under. So all the stuff we talk about. So kick if you're forced like to that. kick on your non-preferred foot, that's considered more pressure no, than No, no. So we're just looking at the level of pressure based on where the opposition is relative to you. So again, right. if, you, if you look at the pressure rating... Um, it's basically looking at how much harder you're making that disposal for the for the person with with that type of pressure. So we worked out uh, looking at three years worth of data when we first did this in 2010 that if you were, had your hands on a on a player, physical pressure. So whether it's a tackle or not, we we explained sort of effective and ineffective tackles a few weeks ago that mm. just because you're slinging a bloke to ground, you might not necessarily get a tackle. You will get a physical pressure act for that. That makes it 3.75 times harder. For the opposition to have an effective disposal whenever you've got physical pressure on. So if, if say there are 100 disposals, a team has 100 disposals, and every single disposal was under physical pressure of 3.75, why is the number 200 or 180? So we, 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 again, it, it, would, be, by it, it would be 375. So we take the decimal point out just to make it a little bit more So the most you could ever have in a pressure factor is 375. And you would probably never see it, yeah. exactly. You'd have to have every single disposal that you get with an opposition hand on you. So looking the other way, it's kind of surprising, but the lowest pressure factor you can get. So again, if there was a free kick paid before the bounce, um, and the ruckman takes it, kicks it out wide to a guy that takes an uncontested mark, and you go all the way uncontested mark all the way down and kick a goal, the opposition will still have a pressure factor of 0.75. So that's the minimum pressure so factor. So 75. Yeah. So just sort of being out there. Shouldn't you know, it be zero? It's it's again. I've this is a bit of a bit above my head, and it's been it's been <laughs> in there for about 13 years, West but. Coast. It, it was explained to me by a doctor of mathematics back 13 years ago, and it sort of made sense to him, so I'll trust him. But again, it, it does surprise me. You'll never see a team with a pressure rating of zero. If you ever see them put it up on TV that says 75, that's zero. then that's basically, yeah, you haven't laid a hand on them. But again, right. so we've got five levels of pressure. So we start at the top, 375 for physical pressure, 225 for corralling, so closing pressure. That's coming in from the front of someone and sort of taking away the space, so you've got a kick through someone or over someone or around someone. Mm-hmm. 1.5 uh, pressure points for chasing. So you, you're clearly making someone run faster and get rid of the ball. So again, they've got it's a little bit easier to hit your target because you've got the space in front of you. you. You've got someone chasing you from behind, so you've got to get rid of it quickly, but you've still got all that space in front of you. So it's 1.5. 
And then we've got corralling pressure, which is basically you're just standing there guarding space. That's 1.2. Uh, and as I said, no pre- so 0.75 is for a set kick. So if you take a mark in free kicks, that's 0.75 pressure. Mm-hmm. If you're actually in general play under no pressure, so no one's around you, that's sort of a pressure factor of one. Um, so as again, so when you see the rating put up on screen, teams just know, and, they, and teams are very similar. They don't really know how champion data are, are collating pressure. It's up to the co- Some coaches might pay attention and, and sort of be across it. But some don't care how we're actually getting to the number. They've just seen that whenever they reach 200, or about, it's probably 205 now, mm-hmm. that they're, that they're hitting, either winning hitting the or they're hitting their, exactly, they're, they're ticking all the boxes. In so terms somewhere of between chasing pressure and, um, and closing. Yeah, so chasing being 1.5, closing being 2.25. If you can have, yeah, most of your pressure racks sort of up in that area. We're talking, that's when you're talking about the scale that you see on Fox footy. So yep. anything over 200, 205, I think is elite mm-hmm. on that graphic. Basically saying, yeah, only 10% of teams actually finish a game at, at 205 or above for pressure Yeah, and, and that's, I think, key, that finish a game. So they'll they'll put it up, you know, halfway through the first quarter and say, oh, they're on they're the world chart. record pace. It's off the charts. It's like... Yeah, but can you maintain that throughout the four quarters? And that generally isn't the case. You're not going to be... I wouldn't imagine there'd be many teams finishing a game with a pressure rating of 245 or something like that. Yeah, and again, when you look at the whole competition as a whole, I think the leading... Again, taking out the decimal point, I think the leader's on 184 and the worst pressure's on 174. So there's only 10 pressure points. it's pretty close. It's not like there's... It's very similar. And again, another one that sort of comes into play is a game's pressure factor will sort of... Uh, almost mirror each other in the opposition. So again, Essendon, a very low pressure side. And we talked about just before about how good their ball movement is and they, they're very mm-hmm. good at getting the ball out in the open. So they're very low uh, for applying pressure, but they're very low for receiving pressure. So if you look at an Essendon game, there's the, there's the least amount of pressure in an Essendon game. Whereas if you look at the Port game, they have more pressure mm-hmm. in their games. But when you rank them based on are you out-pressuring your opposition, Essendon actually come above Port Adelaide in that. So Essendon are low for applying pressure. But because they receive such little pressure from their opposition, their differential actually ranks top three or four in the competition. That, Yeah, so that's another way to look at pressure. You, you want to apply it, but you also want to win just the differential. If we apply it and they apply more, then it's mm. no good. But if, I guess that's kind of why they put it up at different points and you say the third quarter pressure and it's like 10 minutes into the third. It's like if you have a 10-minute period where you're at mm. 220 uh, and the opposition might be at 170... More pressure or on on every disposal is probably a good thing because you're getting more intercepts. You're taking more yeah. marks in the back fifty, like whatever it might be. I get that they put it up for smaller amounts of time because you can get a sort yeah, of a yeah. microcosm. No, no, of- I'm not having a go at that. I also think though that it's it's and you might be able to confirm this. It's it would be it seems like it would be difficult or rare for two teams to have you know, in the same game, to have a, a massive differential between their pressure. If one team's applying a lot, it feels like it would have to kind of be reciprocated, so yep. to speak. Yeah, probably. I don't have the the highest differentials in a game this year, but it'd probably be about 15 pressure points. So it'd yeah. probably be like 205 to 190 is, is like a smashing in pressure. Wow, okay. So it is. It's because it's a two-way street. If, if you're applying pressure... When you win the ball back, in yeah, tight you're, and... in, you're in tight. So again, and, and you look at sort of two parts of the game which you spoke about. So putting pressure on around the clearances so pre-clearance pressure across a game is 259 so at stoppages a lot of bodies around the ball a lot of physical pressure makes sense post-clearance it's 167 so again that's where we talk about a lot of it is it's really easy if you just had a stoppage and you lose the stoppage you're going to have a high pressure rating because you've already you've just got midfielders there that are just reacting whereas if you can actually so as i said 167 post-clearance if you're around 180 or 185 for post-clearance post-clearance pressure that's when you know you're sort of working your backside off to actually Mm. uh get to the space and and get to the ball 50 meters out of stoppages and things like that so again 
as probably not as high as I thought. Fifty-seven percent winning percentage if you have more post-clearance pressure than your opposition. Fifty-four percent if you have more pre-clearance pressure than your opposition. So you, you want to outpressure your opposition in general play. Really quickly before we move on, some of the teams that are doing pressure well. Yeah, so Sydney again. Uh, you talk about their drop off from last year and what they're doing well and not doing well compared to making grand final last year. One thing that stood the test of time across the last two years is they've been the number one pressure team. Um, for two years straight. So, and again, that that leads to their post clearance pressure as well, which is one seventy one. Um, so, as I said, so slightly above the average. Uh, second most post clearance pressure, and they've probably worked their way back up. There is G- GWS Giants. So, as I said, uh, talking about their when Kingsley came in, they were really about their ball movement and bringing that high handball game. I reckon the last five or six weeks, um, the defence they've been one of the best team, the hardest team to score against, and their pressure is sort of going through the roof in general play. So, another part of mm-hmm. the Giants game that's pressure. taken them to the yeah, other level. Giants having a good run. Um, where are we? Uh, yeah, look. So, like I said off the top, we probably haven't gone through this sort of stuff uh, since you know, sort of the second, third, fourth year of the podcast. And we, you know, it's easy for us to kind of ah, we've already talked about pressure and all that kind of stuff, and just you know, forget about it for a while. But if all, there our are, new, all our new listeners. Matt. Well, I was going to say, if there are any stats out there that you would like explained and a run through, and and the teams that are doing it well, just let us know at Footy Tips on Twitter. Um, Jake, mm. Harry Sheasel. What about him? Rising star favourite? I think it's pretty much a coin flip now. So, 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 well, Will Ashcroft will miss the last few games because he's uh, unfortunately done his ACL. Mm. Yeah, real shame. I mean, you never know ACL is great, but this point of the year where you obviously will miss the rest of the year and then your whole next year yeah, is compromised. Green, isn't it? And then it's like, you know, you might come back right at the end and if Brisbane's not having a great year, do you bring him back? So, you, you really, it, it's it's... Horrible injury for the Nick young, Murray for the also young did an ACL on the weekend. Yeah, we've seen a few of them uh, this year. So, mm. I guess the the question is, and I mean, I don't think there is any any answer for for a lot of these awards. But how many games is enough? How many games is enough to play that makes you eligible for? Uh, for these awards, yeah, because I don't think it's like a, you're not getting points per game, obviously for the right. No, Rhymes, so though. it's so. But but you look at some of the other names just quickly before. I, I like your point, and we'll, we'll I'll zero in on that a bit more. But other. People that might be in contention, you probably look at Jai Mitch, Amos has been pretty good. No, I think Mitch Owens, Mitch is Owens has been the, fantastic. Probably the third, the third pick behind those two. I, I think it's clearly going to be one of one of Sheasel or Ashcroft. Um, but yeah, the, those two names probably three and four on the list. Um, Sheasel, another just incredible performance on the weekend. So I think it was twenty eight disposals at like ninety two percent efficiency. Um, how good has his first year been for North? Yeah, well, again, it's uh, he's. Definitely has no trouble finding the ball. So 26.6 disposals per game across his first 18 matches, I think it is. Second highest ever, or again, we go back to 99, but I don't think disposals would be much higher before then. Second highest uh, in that time in the first 18 games, only Toby Green above it. I think we've spoken about Toby Green. People on the, forget how people forget, much of a ball magnet he was. Yeah, he was on. running around just getting 30 and 40 while the Giants <laughs> were getting smashed. But, you know, they'd finish with 100 fewer disposals than the opposition and Toby Green would still have 30, 35. Gun. So, uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what he started doing. Not even Michael Barlow. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. he, he features highly on those first year <laughs> disposal he's 22. numbers. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so as I said, second for disposals, number one for kicks per game uh, since 99. So, obviously, they give they give him the ball and he's, he's got the duty to actually get uh, and move it out of defence. And the fourth most uncontested possessions anyone's ever averaged in their first 18 games. So, yeah, again, I I, I thought the uh, sort of... Uh, I got, you know, pumped up Sheasel more once Wardlaw started playing. I just thought, how yeah. much better is Sheasel if you've mm. got a Wardlaw to feed it out to him? So I'm still yeah. waiting to see those two sort of get a connection in, in yeah. the midfield because 
Again, I think a few people have started to whack She's a little bit. He's but also LBU was out for a while, similar kind of distributor out yeah. to the outside. But I, I feel like some of the talk about She's is it's, it's it, you know, he's getting too much easy ball and it's so it's like, well, someone has to do it. North, North want to get the easy ball. And North want to give it to someone to make the right decision. Well, eerily then, similar to someone last year who's now a Brownlow favourite. Well, 100%. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There's a reason they, that... They know wanted, why they want to give him yeah. the ball. Yeah. What you say is 92% uh, efficiency. 28 at 90 at least yeah, on the yeah. weekend. Yeah. Like and I, you know, I've been guilty of, of probably not criticizing someone like Dacos, but wondering why. Uh, and we'll probably touch on this a little bit later as well. But wondering why opposition coaches don't put more attention to them. It's clear that the that you know Collingwood with Dacos and North with uh, Sheezel want to get the ball in their hands. So if if they're giving it to them, and they're in space. Then what? It's not their fault. Um, another young player we might discuss now as well. Aaron Cadman, so the number one pick, Jake. Just an, an interesting first year, and, and I'm really hesitant um, to be critical of young players, especially young key position Here players. Go, you're back. You're back. No, no, I'm not back. Uh, hesitant to be very critical of young key position players because we know, and we've discussed this on the podcast before, is that it takes a long time for these guys to develop. These are 17, 18-year-olds coming in, trying to play um, you know, probably beyond their, their years in terms of their body mm. maturity. Uh, and he's come in and he's playing, uh, I think, 10, 12, more, maybe more games. I think 11 games, yeah. So, well, if you're not going to criticize, I guess I'll have to then. Okay. He's played 11 games. He's kicked six goals. He's never kicked more than one in a game. Um, he's never had more than seven disposals in a game. I think he's averaging about four and a half disposals per game. Um, 51 disposals for his career, 21 clangers. Um, We're not seeing enough, are we? I haven't seen anything, honestly. And I'm not prepared to say he's a bust yet because he has only played 11 games and mm. we know that that uh, key position players do take a bit longer. With that said, though, and yes, there is the caveat of key position player, players are coming in. We've just spoken about Cheezer. We've spoken about Dacos. And there's different there's types of players. Different type of players, yes. But we are seeing it earlier now with all sorts of players. We're yeah. seeing flashes that say... That's he, look at the way he leads, or look at his contested marking, or look how accurate he is in front of goal. Something mm. I haven't seen anything from Cadman yet that makes me think. Forget number one pick that makes me think he can be a good player in this league. Let alone well, great. I've got some numbers on him, but even just looking at you, you talk talk about people coming in and having an immediate impact. I saw Cadman being a different sort of player in terms of Jacob Van Roy and what Melbourne were able to do with him. So he was on their list all the last year. And just played VFL all of last year and just got sort of comfortable at being the key position target at VFL level last year. And then they put him into the team this year and sort of everyone goes, how good is he? I feel like that's what you need as a key forward. You need to be given a forward line if you sort of want to develop. It's hard for Cadman to come in and sort of be third fiddle to Toby Green and Hogan when he plays and, and things like that. And it's it's almost like because he's the number one pick, they're, they're giving him a game earlier. But I would almost rather see, we're seeing it with Jacob Van Roy and with Melbourne. And Melbourne have got another one that are coming through. Matthew Jefferson, who was another guy that's just kicking goals in the VFL. Wait to 12 months' time when he starts playing for Melbourne. And I was like, where they find this kid? Well, they find him and they let him develop for 12 months in the VFL. So, so, so you think that's what the Giants I, should have done? I think so. Especially with a key forward, you need to, you need to just give him... Yeah, his own space and something that makes him comfortable. I, again, I watch him and I don't feel like he's he's not their leading target. He's not their number one target inside. But do you 50. think it's he's... more about giving him giving him the whole forward line, or is it that just giving it... him con- continuity? It's just that you will be our number one target in the VFL See, level. Tar- yeah, so... he's never going to be the number one target with Toby Green in that forward line as well. But it it, it really does feel like I know Hogan's Ho- Hogan's there too, somewhat. But it really has felt like it's Green and then. 
Cad is Cadman the next option for a lot of the season? Well, potentially. Uh, and, and look, so, maybe, so maybe the point, fact that sorry, he's playing po- games while the, the Giants are winning. Yeah, my point is he, he's not the fifth option in that forward line. He's not in a forward line stacked with players where it's like he's he's not getting any opportunity. Yeah. Um. When when do key position players hit their peak? Because we talk about taking a long time to develop. When is it where the, I, I don't know, average rating points per game or whatever kind of hits its peak for these kids? Yep. So with key forwards especially, they go up every year up until they're 25. Seven um, years from now. So Six if, years from now. Every year from 18, 19, 20, you go up at least, you know, one rating point or half a rating point every year up until you're 25. But I imagine that would be similar with all positions. Wouldn't you get better at... at, uh, at there's a, few, a higher base for... Yeah, the, there's a few positions that come in at about 23, 24 and start to... Like a midfielder, you'll see a lot of them sort of... A, a 24-year-old will be... Get to their lot, best sooner. ...a lot similar to a 29-year-old midfielder, whereas a 24-year-old key forward is still a fair way away from... That's what fair. I was about to say is, as I said, they go up every year to their 25. For some reason, they just drop at 26. So I'm not sure what happens there. But at 27, they're better than they were at 25, and they keep going up again to 31. So I think the numbers are skewed a little bit in terms of if you're playing as a key forward at 30, 31, you're a good player that's been given time in the league, and you're obviously one of the highest-rated players. You wouldn't see many players have a Cadman-like career and make it through to 30 and and sort of bring the numbers down. So, But again, it it is one of those ones that say that, yeah, you've got about six or seven years of, of continual growth before you sort of reach your peak, but... Yeah, looking at Cadman, so we do look at your relative rating. So how what he's rating at, so he's a 19-year-old at the end of the year as a key forward. He's negative 53% of all other 19-year-old key forwards across so the that's, last 13 that years. that is key. Yeah. Yep. So that, and that's the second Compared worst of... contemporaries. Yep. Yeah. Second worst of any... Uh, yeah, second worst of any 19-year-old key forward. The only one that was worse, Paddy McCartan. So that was across his first six or seven games. I don't think he'd had any concussion issues in that one. I think he just had a slow start again, Paddy mm-hmm. McCartan. I think... and and. I remember the same with Paddy McCartan saying the same thing. Saying he would have thrown him forward, but he needed a lot more time to sort of just get used to how to be a, a leading target and, 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 and that work rate that was required to be a key forward in, in an AFL team. Throwing back? Uh, I was just about to say, I reckon in two, year, two to three years' time, we'll be playing in defence. Bookmark that one. Yeah. I, quick question. If, would the Giants like a do-over of sorts with Cadman? Would, if, if someone said, we'll give you pick... Five in this year's draft for Aaron Cadman, are they doing it? Are you taking it? They're probably not doing it because of the optics and the fact that, well, we've taken this guy with our top selection and we, we're going to back him in. I think this year's draft, a, you'd probably say yes. But is he worth that? I would take no, pick five. No, I'd take pick five. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. taking pick pick five, yeah. Yep. Uh, look, fingers crossed. The, um, look, big off season. You never know what happens and, and we see a bit yeah, more improvement. But him. the stats are yeah, a bit bit iffy at the moment for him. Uh, we need to whip through these. I've just realised we're, we're already sort of 38 minutes through the podcast. Uh, but the key stat from every game. So uh, we've been doing this this year where we look at every single game and, and Christian identifies where it might have been won or lost. So uh, Essendon versus Bulldogs. Um, oh, disappointing from the Feels Dons. Feels like a lifetime ago, oh, that I game. I feel like that was kind of like a, I don't want to say like cliche, line in the sand game, but that was a game where if the Dons had won that, you'd be like, well, they're making finals. And they could potentially win one and win their first since uh, God knows when it is. But <laughs> uh, boots in. <laughs> where was it won or lost? Uh, so, yeah, inside 50s were even across the night. So both teams had, you know, the same amount of looks at goal. Bulldogs were able to score 22% more often from their inside 50 uh, which is their be- best differential in any game this season and Essendon's worst differential in any game this season. So, yeah, I was sort of watching the game. was It was a really hard watch, but 
they both sort of tried to control the tempo, control possession. Essendon took about 100 marks, but it was it was just once they got it forward, the dogs were able to score and Essendon weren't. Uh, just quickly, your man, uh, Tom Liberatore, 22 contested possessions, 16 ground ball gets, Jake. Oh, he was great. Uh, hard to give the three between uh, Liber and Bont. They were both fantastic. Um, but he's the fire starter for them. I mean, it's, cl- it's clear. <laughs> Thanks, Dwayne. It's, well, <laughs> it's clear. I mean, he's the one that gets, gets it all going. And he's been underrated for his whole career. Uh, Richmond and Hawthorne, it seemed like the Tigers just threw caution to the wind in the last term in terms of their ball movement. Yeah, so you look at kick-to-handball ratio by quarter. So 1.5 in quarter one, so one and a half kicks for every handball. Quarter two, 1.38 kicks for every handball. Quarter three, 1.34 kicks for every handball. So we know Richmond love to use hand and move the game, move the ball. But 2.31 in the second, in the fourth quarter, so 2.3 kicks for every handball. They just went direct. Just kick the damn thing. And they finished with the best kick rating of any team across the competition. So they were the best at kicking the ball for the round and decided in the fourth quarter, hey, we're going to actually get it, get the ball forward and moving quicker and, you know, to kick the... Will you expect to see that sort of starting from the first quarter this week? No, again, I think it's more of what Hawks give you. Hawks are, are very much a, a, a similar to Essendon. They're a low-pressure team, so there's a lot of space in a Hawks game. I think Richmond, as I said, they're very comfortable moving the ball by hand, um, and, and I think Hawks were a little bit onto that in the first three quarters. It was just mm. more of what Hawthorne was giving him. It's like, all right, instead of taking... 10 or 15 metres by handball. Let's go the extra 30 metres by kick and, and get the ball moving. I uh, yeah. saw this going into the Blues and the Eagles game, but the Eagles actually went into the game and we've talked about how top-heavy they are in terms of their age and experience, but they were the older and more experienced team on Saturday against the Blues. Isn't that crazy? So that's the thing. I'm sick of all these excuses for the Eagles about how they're such a young side. So there is, it, again, so it's the bottom level though. So There's, there's no one in the middle. Yeah. No talent in the middle. Mm. So there's 10... For, for the two teams, there was uh, 10 West Coast players that were aged age 26 or over, uh, and same amount for Carlton. So they both had 10, so 26 or over. Uh, 21 to 25-year-olds, West Coast had six, and Carlton had 10. So that's sort of a, a big part of there. But then 20 or under, there was seven for the Eagles, and five of those guys were teenagers. I think Carlton had three guys uh, aged 20 or under. I think, yeah, I think they were all teenagers. Though, or might have been two teenagers and one 20-year-old, but... That's where it is. So you've got the got the top heavy guys, but you sort of got nothing between the ages of, yeah. As I said, twenty one to twenty five is a bit bleak, but yeah, just so many teenagers playing in the same game. Um, Blue scores from clearances starting to get their mojo back with that stat in particular. Yeah. So West Coast won scores from turnovers, and we've spoken about that a few times West about Coast West Coast did. scores from turnovers. turnovers sorry, yep. So we've spoken yep. about that a few times this year. They beat Geelong when they got you know they, they lost the game by eighty points, but actually outscored Geelong from turnover and and did it again against Carlton. So a lot of turnover game and it's the way West Coast play you get a turnover you can sort of especially if it's a mark or something and you can start to go slow and sort of rely on your structure and sort of that's where they took the heat away from the game West Coast and started going sideways and kicking the ball um, shorter and sort of protecting themselves that way whereas as I said at a stoppage it's more about you can set up for something happening at the stoppage but the way it comes if, if the team wins a clearance it's more unpredictable of where that ball's going and how it's coming out of the stoppage that's what Eagles can't defend this year so it's it's the chaos part of the game where they just lost that so mm. 97 points to 15 from clearances across the game as I said 43 to 48 in West Coast way from turnovers so it's the stoppage part of the game so it's been good for Carlton um, but it's also been just a, a massive is- issue for West Coast in terms of when the game stops and they're in the stoppage area, one, they can't get their hands to it first, and two, they just can't defend the opposition coming out of there. Uh, Brisbane and Geelong. Gee, almost a banana peel game for the for the Lions there. You love the banana peel I'm reference, big on the banana peel at the moment. Um, yeah, that was... 
I don't know. One of Br- Brisbane's lower scores at the Gabba I can remember. Yeah? Was it... I don't know. I've been, I watched that game twice. And I don't know if it says more about Geelong or if it says more about Brisbane. I don't know if I fully believe in Brisbane. Mm. Yeah, it, it probably summed it up quite well. So I looked at the first three quarters in particular, and Brisbane were plus 28 contested possessions, plus 21 ground balls, plus 16 inside 50s. I mean, they were up by four goals or so, but it was the accuracy. Like, if Geelong had a kick straighter, they would have almost been even. So it was like, well, Geelong can sort of get smashed at the source, but they've got that, again, the opposite to West Coast. They've got reliance on their structure that they don't get blown out of the water. They can, as I said, you can lose the contested possessions by 28, yet you're not out of the game yet. Mm. So um, even just their their inside 50s, they had 28 inside 50s for the first three quarters. That's their equal uh, third fewest in any game since 2015. So they couldn't get the ball in there. But they just defended. They just defended like their life depended on it for the first three quarters, and then that gave them a chance in the fourth quarter, where the sort of you know they were able to break the game open and get a bit more scoring. But again, I'm sort of looking at you. I'm like, well, Brisbane smashed them, but you still got that confidence in Geelong in their structure. They're not going to get scored against heavily and things like that. They're going to sort of be able to hold teams at bay and keep themselves in 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 the game. Dockers, oh, disappointing. We'll get to them a little bit later. Uh, and the Swans, so Frio, 17 shots from 50 inside 50s, whereas the Swans were able to kind of get their shots away from limited chances, so 26 shots from 45 inside 50s and ended up smashing them. Yeah, exactly. It was yeah similar to Bulldogs, Essendon. It was plus 24% um, in terms of Sydney was, you know, 24% better scoring in an inside 50 than Frio were, um, yeah, which is the eighth biggest differential of any game this season. Uh, but yeah, the first quarter was probably another one that's you know it's, it's just hurt Frio all year. So it was six two to two one uh, at quarter time. But the next three quarters, Frio actually only lost by four points, which includes Heaney kicking a goal after the siren. So if Heaney doesn't kick that goal after the siren, Frio win the next three quarters by two points, and again mm. just kick themselves that we're just not starting games quick enough and putting putting themselves too far behind. Good game on uh, Saturday night. What did you end up making when you when you got home and, and watched it at one o'clock in the morning, Jake? Uh, it was amazing. It was the best game of the year, pretty comfortably, I thought. And if that was the final game and we didn't see any more football this year, uh, I'd be pretty happy for that to be the grand final. And to be honest, I'd be pretty happy with Collingwood to win. I think they've deserved it. I know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but that was, a, that was an epic game. And usually those top first v, v, 1v2 or 1v3, they... they Don't quite live up to yeah, the Yeah, that was just... That's as good as anyone could have asked for. Uh, what did you notice from that? Yeah, so it's probably the, the visuals from that game. So again, a good game to compare it to Friday night. Essendon Bulldogs already spoke about that one. But what I looked at is the turnovers in this game So and, and marks. So it was the fifth fewest marks taken in any game this year in Port Adelaide Collingwood. And it was the 30th most turnovers, so not, not really high. But if you look at a differential between those and you look at uncontested marks, it's the fourth biggest differential between you had more turnovers than you did have uncontested marks. You go to Bulldogs Essendon on Friday night, it was it was flipped the opposite way as the third biggest differential in terms of the teams were say, taking so many marks but never turning the ball over. So you talk about football and, you know, turnovers get seen as a negative and it means the teams are making lots of mistakes. You watch Port Adelaide Collingwood and, and a high turnover game with low marks just means the ball is constantly in motion. Every contest matters. There's a lot more pressure. There's no sort of slowing of the tempo. <laughs> So that was the the big thing for me was just the the style of footy that you want to watch. You do Mm. want to watch a game that has lots of turnovers, lots of ground balls. Mm. Once teams start chipping around and taking the mark, I feel like that's when footy gets a bit harder to watch. Uh, You talk about Collingwood deserving it. They were plus 17 points uh, over their expected score in the fourth quarter alone, um, which is, yeah, it's the fourth 
the second best fourth quarter this season. So, like you, you, you said this yesterday, just, you've just got to be up by four or five goals against the Pies at three quarter time to have enough. a sniff. Four, four or yeah. five is not enough. I think you're not you're not comfortable unless you're seven up. As crazy as that sounds, they've got this psychological edge over everybody now. Where if they're up, you think, gee, they're the best last quarter team. How can we overrun them? And if you're down. Uh, if they're down, they, you know they're going to come back at you. So We'll talk about expected score, especially with Jamie Elliott uh, in a moment. Just quickly on that game, that is almost the perfect score in an AFL game, in my opinion. 85 to 83, close. You've had a great finish. It was tight throughout. And, what, 167 points. That is like... I was going to say, I think the average might be 84. So it might be... <laughs> that's what I reckon is just a great score. It's not... Seesawing, it, no big margin. Yeah. It's not... It's it's enough scoring where you, you're getting regular scoring, but not a crazy amount where every goal kind of doesn't mean anything. You get, you know, both teams scoring 110 points or something. I think that is like almost the perfect game of football in so many ways. I think it was like 11 or 12 lead changes. So, yeah, not, not too bad. Uh, Giants finally... Notched a win at Canberra. Yeah, I was, that was probably one thing I, I noticed a bit one week too late was when they put the graphic up pre-match. I said, oh, they haven't had a good record at Canberra. I'd sort of missed that. They'd uh, only had one win there um, from 2019 onwards. And that was, yeah, that's just their second win in nine games there. It was before that. So 2015 to 2018, they were 12-1 and one at Canberra. Uh, and obviously, yeah, 2-7 and seven since. So that was a big one for me. But yeah, so looking at Gold Coast again under the new coach, we talk about structure and, and trying to set up and, and sort of get you get that part of your game right. They had 32 forward half stoppages for the Suns and only 11 for the Giants. So this, the Suns, I reckon, did have their uh, their structure and their game going in terms of they were able to lock the ball in their forward half and sort of and, and sort of restrict GWS's um, constant end-to-end ball movement, which they did quite well. So again, I, I feel like their structure held up well. But you look at post-clearance stuff that we sort of talk about in general play, Giants were plus 26 for contested possessions and plus 15 for tackles. No other team this year has been plus 15 in each of those two stats against the opposition. So it was probably work rate. I think the Suns were all standing in the right spot and, and doing the right thing. But then once it got out of the stoppages sort of thing, mm. the, the work rate of the Giants being able to either win the contest or just tackle you straight away if, if Gold Coast did get the hands of the ball. Mm. That was the biggest difference in that game. And another one that frustrated me, Another 10 intercept mark game by Sam Collins. It's How many that, have we had this year? Uh, I think we've had we're two this week. F- yeah, we had two this week. I think we've up to five or six this year. Someone's um, got plus another it. three or four. So we're waiting for the someone to take the 11th intercept mark. He had five in the, the first, first 19 minutes 19 of minutes. the game and then Come didn't on, take Sam. another one to the third quarter. So Didn't Radigalia do that? Yep, yeah, everyone's done it. So <laughs> it's just, yeah, everyone just sort of gets so close to 10 and There's then goes no missing. There's no other so. record in this game sport that I feel like is People are fixating about on. and yeah. it's just tied so often. Uh, D's and Crows at the G. Yeah, probably looked at probably the first 13 minutes of the second quarter, similar to the Frio Sydney game. So uh, first 13 minutes of the second quarter it was 26 points to one. Um, uh, so 25 point differential it means the Crows basically won the rest of the game um, by 20 odd points. So yeah, 41 disposals for seven inside 50s and 4-2 for Melbourne. So just direct. I mean, that's, as I said, you know, uh, 10 disposals for every goal and, and six scoring shots from seven inside 50s. It was just pure, good, clean footy for 13 minutes. And then it was a battle for the other 90 minutes of that game. I think we said this about the Ds last week. It, it feels like they play 10 or 15 minutes twice a game. But those and it's ten, enough. But those, yeah, but those 10 or 15 minute patches, like Christian just said... It's enough to establish a bit of a gap. Just treading water, but I feel like if they can, if they can put it together for a little bit longer, 
They're, I think they're, they're a, a worthy, they're a they're a worthy third seed. I think they're a significantly better team when Fritch and Oliver come back in, which they both should be coming back. Well, um, on Clayton. Yeah. I think it just changes the so many dynamics with having those two players back in in terms of positional and how they play and all that sort of stuff. So um, I'm not not jumping off Melbourne just yet. And the last game of the week, St Kilda versus North Melbourne. Yeah, so again, probably by the eye, it looked like Saints didn't really come back into that game till late in the f- fourth quarter. But if you look at expected scores, they sort of took the lead uh, about 10-minute mark of the third quarter. They Their expected scores had them in front. They just had to start to get their accuracy right, which they got by the end of the game and overrun North. But it heard Ross Lyon talk about it in the post-match uh, press conference that they sort of seemed a bit lost and, and sort of went too fast with the ball. So the first half, they played on after a mark 51% of the time. Um, and in the second half, it was 15% of the time. So they were just going helter-scout through that first half and, and ended up turning it over. It was way too fast. They, their comp average is, or their season average is 29%. Um, so I could see Ross Lyon watching that first half, and they're going at 51%, just going, what are you doing? Why did he play on there? Why did he play on there? It's the Zach Jones effect. Um, and they yeah, slowed the game down, which, which Ross Lyon spoke about in his press conference, which worked for them. Uh, all right, to get into red time of this podcast, proudly brought to you by Subway, which means it's time for Is the Hype Justified or Is it Hyperbole? You've got a full stack of these ahead of us. Good. Yeah, I like it. Far away. Justin Longmuir is under as much pressure as Adam Simpson out west. Yeah, that's justified, I think. Um, I don't know if he's under more, but it's got to be right on, you know, in line with, with Adam Simpson. So it's funny with the Eagles so I think a lot of people almost give Simpson a pass because they just think they look at West Coast and because they're that bad you think well what could he do too many old players too many young players not enough in the middle what do you do whereas I think Freo I mean I I have been pretty you know staunch on this I didn't I didn't rate Freo that highly last year or this year you guys probably a little bit higher on them than myself well the, the question was always over their offensive ability they, yeah. they won a final last year and now they're bottom four yeah so um I guess who's more likely to be out of a job sooner? Probably Simpson, but long long newer payouts big though for the Eagles. Four four years now, so it's yep. you know you think you think he's just started. It's already been four years, so um, they'd want to start well next year. Christian Jamie Elliott is the most clutch player in the league. I think he is now. We've tried to do it. We've tried to do it so many times on this podcast and trying <laughs> to find all these fancy metrics. But I've, I've and I said this. I think. A couple of years ago, Michael Walters might have done the same thing two weeks in a row. You, you take the evidence. You take the guy that just continually does it. So, um, yeah, I had a look at his expected scores from those shots that he's taken. So he's had three probably famous goals that we think of. So round 19 last year um, against Essendon, he kicked that goal from almost a similar spot to what mm. he did on the weekend. Well, that's that, my, my first thought when he had the ball. Yeah, then. well, the one against Essendon was slightly easier than this week. So the one against Essendon was a 37% expected hit rate, which he, which he got Difference the goal. He got so. to run around, whereas the, when the siren had gone Yeah, and there's Essendon. more pressure because it's like, this is it. Whereas if he misses that one, well, there is still a little bit more time. So does that that doesn't get factored into the... Expe- no, well, if you talk about pressure, the it was actually a slightly harder kick, the second one, because he did come off his line. It meant the opposition could... Which they pressure did. Him, yeah. Good yeah. pressure him. Whereas a set kick is a bit easier because you know, even no one though can your come angles from the side. Worse. So that's interesting. Only slightly. And again, I'm trying to picture the the Essendon. That's sorry, the Port Adelaide one. I don't think anyone really came at him. Uh, I'd have to look at exactly what pressure he gave on that one. But yeah, if once you come off your line, you're sort of mm. more likely to receive more pressure. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, as, as I said, 37% expected hit rate for that uh, one in round 19 last year. He got that, so that was plus 63% for that shot. Uh, against Carlton, it was on the run, um, sort of forward pocket, thirty meters out. That was a fifty, a fifty-four percent expected hit rate, which he got. Uh, but then, yeah, this weekend was the hardest one. So, 
Uh, from where he kicked it, it was a 26% expected hit rate, which he got, and it was expected result of 1.96 points from that from that zone. You guys should also factor in the the port enough screaming in his ear. And the Essendon nuffs. He's had two nuffs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jake, James Sisley is the most valuable player to his team in the league. I, I think we're going to get a lot of justifieds today, and I think uh, it's another one. Yeah, he, he is. I don't think there's another one, that another player that comes close. Christian has some stats on, on Sicily, which I'm sure he'll share in a moment, but it's what your eye tells you. I mean, Hawthorne looks like, not that they're as good as any team, but they're competitive against most teams when he's playing um, and patrolling that back line. When he's not, they look a totally different team. And for one player to make such a big difference in a, te- in a sport where there are so many players on the field, it's not basketball where there's only five guys out there, mm. it's kind of incredible. Uh, what he's able to do. Even like, you look at like, so round 11 when they beat St Kilda uh, and that was a big win for them. Gets suspended, misses the next week, they lose by 10 goals. He comes back, they beat Brisbane by 25 points. Uh, Then he misses the next three through suspension. They lose by 10 goals, 10 goals and two and a half goals. Uh, And then he comes back and they beat North Melbourne by 48 points. If you're an opposition coach and you're you're coming up against the Hawks and you you can say, well, you can pick one player to not play this week. It's going to be (laughs) Sicily every time. Not sure that the same can be said for any other team. Yeah, so with Sicily, I mean, this is a little bit, little bit frustrating because I don't have it for the whole competition, every single player. So sort of trying to get where it ranks, uh, not too sure, but I can look at some other players uh, later in the week. But when he's been on the field or playing for the Hawks, they're negative 8.6 points per 100 minutes. So they still get outscored when he's on the field. But not but by much. Exactly. They're, they're a young team sitting, you know, bottom three. Um, so negative 8.6 per 100 minutes when he plays. When he's either on the bench or doesn't play, they're negative 37 points per 100 minutes. So it's a four-goal four difference. Yeah, four-goal difference with him either being out there or not. So so then this opens Ma- up hey, another hey, sort if, of... If his manager's listening to this, take that to the Hawks. I that's mean, your next contract. Yeah, he he should easily be a, mil- a million-dollar player in terms of value. And that opens another sort of question. Most valuable player. We, we have Brownlow, we have coaches votes, we have, we have, we have all these awards... Do we need a proper most valuable player where we actually give it to the most valuable, not the best, the most valuable player? I like because it. Because he is the most valuable player in the league. I, I like don't it. particularly think it's close. Yep, no, I agree. Uh, Matt Crouch could revive his career at another club? Uh, yeah, he could. Only 28. Um, Only 20, yeah, I forget that he's not 30 plus. Yeah, he feels like he's been around for quite a while. Uh, I mean, we saw Brad Crouch probably wasn't quite the same level as Matt in terms of not being able to get a game. But go to St Kilda and is a key contributor now. Um, I think there are team. The, Matt Crouch has his flaws. The, he he's not the fittest guy. He's not the fastest guy. He's a very good inside player, and there are teams that need that. I mean, there are plenty of teams that could do with a with an inside player feeding the ball out. So with someone like Tom Mitchell, I know he's probably been sub last couple subbed in and out. But bringing a guy like that, that's just we want you to win the ball at the coal face and. Yeah, I, I think Matt Crouch has uh, value in this league. And last one, before we wrap things up, Christian Carlton must tag Nick Dacos on Friday night. Oh. Uh, you got to put someone, You got yeah, someone, whether it's a hard tag, because I don't think Carlton sort of play that way, but you've got to have someone that's responsible Accountable for him. Who are you and putting on him? The best runner in our team, probably, or in, in Carlton's <laughs> team, Matthew Cottrell, who yeah, might surprise I, I a few like people, it. but I can't. I, I agree. Can't figure I out anyone else. Yeah, no, you did. I, I think the the two obvious names might have been George Hewitt and Ed Kerno, but I just don't think they're the right matchups for him. I think you need someone who, yeah, who, who 
Dake, Nick Dacos's greatest strength is his ability to spread like that from but the that, stoppage. That might be the way you do it. So if Nick Dacos is at the stoppage, just put Ed Kerno on him. Outside, Matthew Cottrell runs with him. Yeah. Don't mind it. Uh, let us know what you think of the podcast at Footy Tips on Twitter. If you want to learn more about some stats, just uh, hit us up. Questions, comments, feedbacks, we'll take it all. Uh, Jake, good to speak with you. You've got to get off to Perth for the Women's World Cup. Christian, nice to have you in the studio as always. To everyone at home, we will speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.